So I want you to open your Bible today to the book of Acts. I'm preaching through the book of Acts, and uh, we're going along just at the pace that God would have us, I hope. And uh, so we're now in chapter number two. And last week, we talked to you about their situation. The day of Pentecost had come. The fire of the Holy Ghost had set down upon each one of them. Uh, it was not, uh, uh, it was as fire, one literal fire. And it was in cloven tongues or divided tongues. In other words, different languages. That fire in their head represented different languages. And wherever they spoke and whoever they spoke to from anywhere in the world heard the gospel, heard the Bible, heard the Old Testament in their own language. Now, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. They wasn't rolling in the aisle. They wasn't being slain in the spirit. They wasn't doing ignorant things. They was just blessed to hear the wonderful works of God in their own language. So that's what happened. And so the Bible says when that happens that there is other things that's going to happen too, right? I mean, there's just other things going to happen. And today I want to talk to you on the subject of... Uh, not only the first sermon in the early church, that's what we're talking about, the first sermon in the early church, but I want to talk to you about what is a good sermon. What is a good sermon? You say, well, you've never preached one, so how would you know? But I do know when I hear a good sermon. I'm kind of like the um, uh, guy that told his pastor, he prayed, he just kept praying, unctionize our pastor. Unctionize our pastor. The pastor got to where he didn't like that too much. He went to the deacon and said, what does unction mean? He said, well, I'm not quite sure what it means, but you ain't got it. I want to have it, amen? I want to have it. So Acts chapter number 2, look at verse number 20. Let's just move on down a little bit further and uh, start in verse number 22. You men of Israel, hear these words of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Your Bible may say Hades, that just simply means the place of a dead. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you. That's what I ask you to do today. Let me freely speak unto you what Peter says or shows us to be. Certainly would be a good sermon. Since it's the very first sermon of the church, it has to be a good sermon. Wouldn't you agree? Can't be a messed up sermon on the first sermon of the church when it's birth. So let's bow and ask God to help us and, and speak to us today as only God does and can. Father, I thank you, God, for our church and thank you for our people. I thank you those who have given so much now and sacrificing, those who have stepped up and helped us when we needed them. I thank you, God, for those who have been faithful over the years and won't let up until you show up. And Lord, I just thank you the day that you can come in this place anytime and move on our hearts. And we'll let you do that today. We want you to do that today. We desire to do that today. We seek that today. Holy Spirit of God, would you fill me? But Holy Spirit of God, would you fill us all today with the Holy Ghost of God? God, if there's anything in our life that would keep you from filling us, May we empty ourselves in repentance and turn to you and be filled with the Spirit of God. We love you. Lord, maybe somebody here, if they died right now, they'd go to hell. But you love them. You want to save them. And I pray today they'll get saved. In Jesus' name, amen. 
when we looked at this passage, we saw something just a little bit different. The rabbis of that day used to sit down when they taught. Even Jesus himself, on some occasions, we would find him sitting, sometimes standing. But most of the time, when we'd go into the synagogue, he would be seated. And so the rabbis, even today, still sit when they teach. But after the day of Pentecost, and they were so fired up by the Holy Ghost, and God had come and filled the room where they were, the Bible said that Peter standing, look what it says, Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice. And listen, he lifted up his voice. He didn't whisper. He didn't have sissy preaching. He lifted up his voice. You could hear him. You can hear him. And so I, I, I like the fact someone said, well, that preacher's too loud. Well, you can't get that out of the Bible because God doesn't put it in there. And he lifted up his voice. Well, you don't have to scream at us all the time. I know, but my wife does me. You don't say nothing about it. <laughs> right? Hey, you mean know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. Listen, we don't mind people screaming as long as they're not screaming about Jesus, Right? But we're screaming about Jesus here today. And, and, and when, they, when he stood up to speak, right before that, the reason he stood up is because they were mocking. They were mocking. They're saying, you're filled with new wine. And like I said, new wine could have been something that had additives in it like sugar or something sweetener to make it uh, ferment quicker. Or new wine could have just been the fresh wine out of the grape. And so either way, they were making fun of them. Here it is, 9 o'clock in the morning, and you're already drunk on your grape juice. That's what they were saying. Making fun of them. You bunch of sissies, you're drunk on your grape juice. You got drunk on your Cheerios this morning. And so they're, they're mocking them. So when they start to mock, Peter stands up. And when he does, the 11 stand up with him. And they mock. And uh, I, I tell you, I don't mind. I, I'm learning now that the more people mock you, the better you're doing for God. Yeah, you can't do much for God without somebody mocking you. I just warn you, if you're a new believer and you say, man, I got saved. I didn't think anybody would ever say anything bad. I thought everybody in the church would, would, would love me and I thought everything would just be wonderful and great. I'm telling you, it's not going to be that way. In fact, it may even be worse. They're going to mock you when you stand up for Jesus. Peter stood up for Jesus. The 11 stood up for Jesus and they were mocked, the Bible said. And so, you know, there's different kinds of responses uh, to sermons, I guess, in churches. And some of them maybe deserve a little mockery. I heard about this woman. Had, um, she hadn't been to church in a while, just to admit it. She just hadn't been, just neglected to go. And it had been out of her life for a while. So she said, you know, I'd really like to go hear a good sermon today. And so she said... Uh, uh, she goes to this church and she goes to the early service and the text was over there in the gospel of Mark about Peter's mother-in-law being sick with a fever. You remember after Jesus comes home and from the synagogue, she was sick with a fever and that didn't really seem to do it far. That preaching just didn't quite get into it. So she went to another church and they had a later service and the preacher got up to preach and he preached on Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever. And she thought, man, I don't know what's going on here, but that wasn't much of a sermon. And then she goes to the hospital to visit somebody and noticed that they were just fixing to start having chapel that morning. So she went into the hospital chapel and they were having a service and the preacher preached on Peter's mother-in-law being sick. And she was just frustrated, just frustrated by it. And so finally the next morning she gets on a bus and there is that same chaplain from that hospital sitting right beside her. And ambulance come running by. And she said, the guy looked at her and he said, I wonder what's going on there. She said, it's probably Peter's mother-in-law. She is sick all day yesterday, amen. <laughs> so someday, some people has a different idea of what a good sermon might be. And 
In fact, a young man called me some time ago, and he said to me, he said, my, my cousin is not saved, and he's getting on up in years, he, and he needs to know Christ, and he's getting harder, and I've been witnessing to him, and I've talked him into going to church today. Would you pray with me today that my cousin would get saved? He's going to be in services today, and it was in another, another town, and so he got up that morning for the first time in years and went to church, and that guy called me back. He said, Brother Glenn, I'm going to tell you something. He said, for the first time I'd gotten my cousin to go to church and we went to church and the preacher preached for 55 minutes on the co-opted program. Folks, that's not what God wants to hear in our church. He wants to hear a sermon that causes the world to mock because they don't understand it. That's what he was saying here. You see, some people criticize in the church. You let somebody stand up for Jesus and they'll criticize you. And that's why he says they mocked. Uh, some people in the church will uh, scrutinize you. They'll uh, try to find something wrong. Look in verse number 12. It says, what could this mean? They'll scrutinize you, you know. Uh, some will even agonize over a sermon. You know, uh, some people, when they hear me preach, they have to go home and take a value. They get messed up. They'll agonize. What it is is conviction. But instead, they criticize it because it is eating their lunch. Eating their lunch. But then, thank God, there's some who personalize it. And verse number 37 of Acts chapter 2 said, And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Isn't it wonderful when they personalize it? And they say, we've heard the sermon. We know what the message is. We want to be saved. Uh, but then there's some who jeopardize it. Some who jeopardize it. They try to ruin the spirit of the church. They get planted in the church to do nothing but ruin the spirit of the church. I can just tell you here this morning, I want a good spirit in our church. I want folks who can cooperate, love each other, walk with God, love, think, believe like we believe, and, and walk like, we want, like God wants us to walk. We need that kind of church, and we don't need somebody out there to ruin that kind of spirit by quenching it or grieving it or hurting it. Listen, folks, we need somebody to lift the spirit, not hurt the spirit, not hinder the spirit. And so there's some who jeopardize it. I've been, you know, called a lot uh, over the years. I, I've been, uh, folks think here lately I've just been called crazy things. I've been called stuff all my life. Ever since I started preaching 40 years ago, people have been saying, that, that kid out there, he's crazy. Amen. I mean, he screams and hollers and spits. You can't do that no more. That's 40 years ago they thought you couldn't do it no more. And so they, listen, this time I've heard that I'm mentally incompetent. I've heard I'm mentally uh, imbalanced. I've heard that I'm not just right. I've heard that all kinds of things. I've heard I threw Bibles at people. I've heard that me and Chris got in a fight. Listen, if me and Chris got in a fight, he'd look worse than he does right now, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, I've even heard that I'm too old to cut the mustard anymore. Well, if that's the shape some of you are too. And then I, I've even went, that went places with my daughter and they would say, uh, later on they would ask, you know, who was that guy you was with? And they thought I was her date. And boy, she'd get mad and then she'd call me names, you know. <laughs> so we get all kinds of things like that. Uh, you, I've, I've been accused of not having God's hand on me. I've been accused of not having the unction of God on my life. I, I mean, I, I, there are some folks who just want to jeopardize the Spirit of God. And I've determined, listen, it's not their spirit, it's His Spirit. And so we need to get filled with the Holy Ghost no matter what the critics say. Can I get a witness? Uh, listen, now, let's look at this sermon. We... As we look at his sermon, we saw the mocking of the sermon. We, uh, last week, we looked at the method of the sermon. Today, we're going to look at the message of the sermon. Let's look at the message that he preached. The first church sermon was this message. Now, folks, this message hadn't changed. It's still the message even for the multitude and the mockers. 
Where it's a multitude like it was here, or mockers like it was here, the message hadn't changed. The message has not changed. It's for the mean as well as the good. Are y'all with me? It's for the mad as well as the merry. Here's why. Here's why God filled us on the Holy Ghost of God, of God when the day of Pentecost came. Because he ascended to heaven. He come and put himself in us that we might advertise him to a lost world. That's our job. That's our job. And, and that is a New Testament church. Holy Spirit empowered, God called, heaven sent preachers. That's what God wants. So let's look at what this message contains. First of all, he starts to preach and he includes the incarnation of this message. Verse number 22. Do you see it? The incarnation of this message. Everybody looking at it? Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Underline it. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. So he starts, and everyone has to understand this, folks. If you're going to come to Jesus, you have to understand the incarnation. You start at Christmas if you want to be saved. The incarnation, you say, what does that mean? That means the God-man. The God-man. That means when God became man and dwelt among us. Emmanuel. That's it. And so look at what God says about it. When this Jesus of Nazareth, a man, he was approved of God among you. God approved him right before your very eyes. He did his miracles. He, he showed his power. The word approved means to share or exhibit or to manifest or to reveal. In other words, God put God on exhibition. He said, here's what I look like. Here's what I can do. Here's how I love. Here's how I heal. Here's how I forgive. Here's what I can do. He put Jesus on exhibition so we could see God. There it is the incarnation of the message. But then Peter lets them know he became a man. He wanted to drive this home. The Jesus of Nazareth, we know Jesus can mean Savior, but Jesus was a common name, right? We know that. And it was a man who was God, but in that day there were people who were named that even though they were not that. So he wants them to understand that here's a man in Nazareth named Jesus, but he is a man that God approves as the man. There's one thing to be a man. He's the man. The man, okay? And so the Jesus of Nazareth was a man who was God. There's never, ever been a man like this. Never, ever will be another man like this. One day on the great tempest, the disciple the waves were covering the ship, and while he slept, they began to cry and to, and to scream, and they cried, Lord, save us, we're perishing, don't you care? And the Bible said he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and they asked this question, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? <laughs> I'll tell you, he's quite a man, isn't he? The man, the man. What manner of man is that? I'll tell you what, he's a God man. He's certified, qualified by God with miracles, wonders. That word means phenomenons. Can you imagine? The wonders that Jesus performed were phenomenal. They weren't, they weren't some sleight of hand. They were phenomenal. And he, he says he did them where they could all see it. Even on the cross, it was a centurion said this, truly this man is the son of God. This man. What manner of man is this? When they brought him before Pilate, Pilate said this, I find no fault in this man. This man. Find no fault in this man. You think he could say that about you? Even Pilate couldn't say it about us. 
Your family can't say it about you. People who work with you can't say it about you. But when they brought Jesus up before Pilate, 33 years old, three years of ministry that had been mocked on every corner, and yet he said, I can find no fault in him. There's never, ever been a man that could be said about but Jesus. What manner of man is this? Well, well, when the officers went to seize him like they were told to do, the Bible says they come back empty-handed. They said, why didn't you bring him back? And this is what they said. Never man spake like this man. Uh, This man was different. Are y'all listening to me? That could never be said about anybody else. They could come here, Glenn didn't. They, they couldn't say, never man spake like, well, they might could say, nobody's ever spoke like that man. But it wouldn't be in, a, it wouldn't be in a, the way that they talked about with Jesus. They had never heard someone speak with such authority. They had never heard someone speak with such power. They had never heard one speak like he was talking from God. He was God. So they didn't bring him back. And so next in... Mark chapter 6, verse number 2, the Bible says that the scripture says, from whence hath this man this wisdom? How does he know this stuff? Well, he'd been around since eternity. That's how. That's how. He'd been around since eternity. John 4, 29, remember the woman at the well? She'd been married five times and was shacked up with a dude right then. And she comes to the well at noon because she didn't think nobody else would be there because people wouldn't have anything to do with her because she was a harlot. And, and, and so the Bible says that Jesus must go through Samaria. He didn't say he might go. He must go. I got to go. I got to get to Samaria. And he goes through Samaria and he sent his disciples into town to go to McDonald's and bring back some French fries because he knew that they could be preserved for 30 days, you know, and so he brought them back. And so when he gets back, the disciples see him sitting on the well. And he asks that woman, do you know who it is that's talking to you? And she begins to say, oh, we worship and I, so that's what people want to do. When you ask them if they know Jesus, they say, well, we go to church over here. I didn't ask you that question. Do you know Jesus or not? You can go to church all your life and go to hell. It's not, hey, Jesus is not asking the question where you go to church. Now, you ought to go to church. Y'all go to a good church. Y'all go to this church. But not a matter about going to church. It's about a matter of going to heaven. And that woman jumped up that day and went running into town and said, Come see a man which told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? You see, that's unction. You see, Christ means the Messiah one, the anointed one, the unctionized one. That's who he was. And so... Then in John chapter 1, verse 30, it says, This is he of whom I, who I said, After me cometh a man. That's what John the Baptist said. After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Well, now, how'd that work? How'd that work? Jesus was born after John the Baptist, yet John the Baptist said he was before me. Can you say that about your kids? Don't work that way, does it? You say, this is my older one, this is my younger one. You don't say, but this one was born before that one. This one was before that one was. You don't do that. So John was six months older than Jesus by birth, but he said Jesus was before him, and the greatest teaching that reincarnation and always existence has is a lie. Folks, listen, when you was born to this world, you were not born to always exist in some kind of form. And when you die, you won't become a locust. Uh, you know, or a fire ant. Or an alligator. You won't do that. No. When you die, you're either going to hell as an unredeemed sinner or you're going to heaven as a redeemed bought by the blood paid by Jesus into heaven those are the only two places you're going you're either going to be whole in him or you're going to be eternally dying without Christ and so how could this be 
John chapter 3, verse 2. We, we, we miss some things sometimes when we read the Bible. Uh, you know, we know certain stories about Nicodemus and all that stuff. But don't you listen to what he says in John chapter 3, verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that our teacher come from God for no man. Whoop, whoop. For no man can do these things except God be with him. And look at verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And see, nobody had ever been there until one came from there to here. All the others were in the place of the dead. Uh, you know it in Luke 16. One half is the place of paradise. Uh, the other place is, is, the, is the place of the doomed and the damned and the lake of fire. And so when Jesus got saved on Calvary's cross, that man who died on the cross went down and they took those people and led them captivity all the way up to glory and set him with himself so they would have everlasting life forever. And now they enjoy the presence of heaven. And when you die and I die, we get to enjoy the presence of heaven. And so... Didn't understand about the man. That's why Jesus told him in John chapter 10, I and my father are, I and my father are one. Verse 33, he said, for a good work, we stone thee not. Listen, they were going to stone Jesus, they thought. Jesus is not going to die by stoning. No, sir. No, sir. They were going to stone Jesus. He said, for a good work, we stone thee not but for blasphemy and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. You know, I was God. They understood clearly that he was saying he was God. Nobody can read the Bible without saying that every Jew around him believed that he was saying that he was God. They couldn't stand him because a man would have the audacity to say he was God. But when Pilate brought Jesus out beaten and wounded and torn and bleeding and bruising. You know the words that could come out of his mouth? Behold the man. And they looked upon God in flesh. Behold the man. Mm. He was the man, not a man. And they looked on God in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 said, The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is of the Lord from heaven. And you see, the first man, Adam, he, he's earthy, right? He, he's full of dirt. That's all he's made out of, dirt. But the second man is the Lord. The second Adam is Jesus. And the Bible said he's from heaven. That means he'll never be dirt. Right? Never be dirt. So, make no mistake, many have tried to wear his title. Many have tried to take his place. But no one carried their credentials but Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. No one could imitate his works. No one could imitate his power. And no one is pulled off a resurrection. Luke chapter 15, verse number 2. I want to thank God for this man. If there was only one man I could know in this world, only one man I could know in this world, you say, well, it'd probably be Donald Trump. I'd like to know Donald Trump. Some things I'd like to tell him. Some things I'd like to straighten him out on. Some things I'd like to agree with him on, but I'd, just, I'd like to know him. There's some other men I'd like to know. I'd like to have known Ronald Reagan. And would have. I'd like to know Mickey Mantle. I would have. I'd like to know Elvis. I would. And I, I, I thank God that Rex Humbard, that Elvis wanted Rex Humbard to know him, and he'd come and see him before, right before he died and uh, led him to Christ. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But the truth of the matter is, if there's only one man I could know in this world. I got some good friends here, and I love them. Man, I'd go to war for them. And they'd go to war for me. And they stuck with me, and I've tried to stick with them. And I love them, but if there was only one man I could know in this world, it'd be the man. The man. What about you? You say, why would you do that? Because this man receives sinners and eateth with them. And that's who I am. That's who you are. 1 Timothy 2, 5 said, there is one God over a mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. 
There's nobody going to get you there but one mediator. In other words, the go-between. If you're going to get to heaven, you got to go through the go-between, and that's the man Christ Jesus. Uh, thank God for that man. Amen. Now, here's the second thing, and I'm hurrying, all right? Well, I got plenty of time. Good gracious. I got another 45 minutes. Number two, the intention of the message. Verse number 23, the intention of the message. I want you to look at it. Verse number 23, do you see it? Him, that man, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. In other words, God was determined that the only way that man could be saved is that, that God became man and dwelt among us and that God took our place on an old rugged cross. That was the determinate counsel of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the, Holy, God the Holy Spirit got together and they agreed this is what's going to happen if we save any of those lost folks. And so the Bible said, even though they didn't carry it out, wicked hands carried it out. And crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. It was controlled by the Father. Secondly, it was carried out by man. Thirdly, it has convicted the world. Write those three things down. Remember, the intention of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, we need to understand that the cross was controlled by the Father. He said, no man taketh my life me. Controlled by the Father, it was carried out by man with wicked hands. And it's convicted all the world, for Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Thank God. Now look at the third thing, the impossibility in the message. Verse number 24. Are you all looking at it? Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Now, Brother Mike gave us a, a the, kind of the other side of that last Sunday night, I believe it was. But I want you to notice the impossibility in this message. Thank God that Jesus allowed himself to die for our sin, but thank God it was impossible for him to stay, stay dead. He couldn't stay dead. Why? Because he was life. He couldn't stay dead. <laughs> I looked at that and I began to think, it's an impossibility to kill God and hold him dead. You can't do it. He just can't do it. Thank God nothing is impossible for God. And this is one of them. No professor, no global scientist, no eco-freco, no liberal school of ministry, no new age or creeped out new millennial can change the fact that it is impossible to keep Jesus in the grave. It's impossible. He overcome death, passed right through the grave clothes, right through the stone, and right through my old dead grave clothes, right into my heart. Woo! Mm. But some things, but some things are impossible one is death. It's impossible for you to get out of this life alive unless you go up in the rapture. Another thing that's impossible for God to do is lie. God can't die and God can't lie. Write that down. It's impossible for God to die. It's impossible. You remember, what, about 25 years ago, uh, some, maybe, or, or maybe a little bit longer than that, they come out with the movement, and maybe it was in the 70s, where they come out with the movement, the God is dead movement. How many remember that? God is dead. They were teaching that in all the schools. God is dead. God is dead. I'm telling you, listen, God can't die, and God can't lie. He died, but you can't hold him. Look what he said. He died, but he can't hold him. Mm. And so... You say, where's that at? Titus 1 verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised the world before the world began. In other words, what God planned in the, in, with the Trinity before the world ever was formed. 
He said, I'll never go back on that. I'll save everybody. I said, I'd save that'll come to Jesus Christ. Now, look, look at the inspiration of this message. Verse 25 through 28, he quotes an Old Testament passage, chapter 16 of Psalms, verses 8 through 11. I like Psalm 16. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great psalm. But he's speaking of David. In verse 25, that's what he's talking about. David was speaking in the Old Testament. Listen, David was speaking in the Old Testament about Jesus of the New Testament. Amen. Now, he'd never met Jesus. He wouldn't meet him for, for some time, but he is writing about Jesus. Look at what he, what he said. He said, for David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. You see, David's writing about Jesus. That's why I believe in the verbal inspiration of the Word of God. You say, I, 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 you, you'll hear somebody say, well, you know, through all these years, the Bible loses a little bit in translation. And it's okay to, to take a little liberty here and a little liberty here to, to so that folks can understand it better. No, it's not okay to take a little liberty here and a little liberty there. Because what God has forever settled the word in heaven, the Bible says. And let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. God verbally spoke this book. He moved, the Bible says. Breathed is what that word kind of means. For the prophecy came not no time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That Second Peter one twenty one. In other words, what Paul, what Peter is saying is, one day God breathed through David's pen and he wrote this down. Whew, don't you like that? Uh, well, I, I I hear these folks, and I've been in schools with them and. And conferences with them to, that'll, that'll argue that. There's, uh, there's these theories, and I won't go into it because you don't care about it, and I sure don't care about going over it. There's all kinds of theories about how it lose, lost some things in translation and how one man handed down to another man, one man handed down to another man, one man handed down to another man, and it was in his words, and then it was in his words, and then it was in his words. By the time it got to us, there's all kinds of errors in it. Now, do you believe that? I don't believe that. You say, why do you believe that? You're you, you just one of them old-fashioned, narrow-minded, hick, hillbilly preachers. You're right. That part's right. But the Bible says in the book of Psalms, it says it several times, his truth shall endure to all generations. So that book is just as relevant this morning as it was 2,000 years ago on the day of, right after the day of Pentecost. Now help me now. See, the resurrected Lord, that's his power. The ascended Lord, that's his position. And the exalted Lord, that's his promise in verse 26. Now let's look at the fifth thing, the interpretation of this message. Today, men say that the priesthood of the believer allows you to interpret the scripture as you see fit. Since all of us is a priest and we don't need a priest to get to God, that we can get on our knees if we're saved and that um, we will be able to talk to the Father. That's right. If you pray in the Holy Ghost, you can talk to the Father. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a deacon. You, you don't need anyone else at any time, at any place, anywhere. You can talk to the Father. I'm happy about that. We call that, we call that the priesthood of the believer. I'm a priest, you're a priest. But that does not give you the right to interpret the Scripture any way you choose. The priesthood of the believer gives you the right to take the book all of us has and interpret it the way it's supposed to be, rightly divided, and then offer up our prayers accordingly. So he interprets the message in verse 29 through 33. Peter interpreted this one way to speak of one person, and that was Jesus. Verse 29, David was dead, so he wasn't talking about David. People go there and kiss his tomb, kiss where it's at. I mean, you know, David's dead, been gone. Verse 30, David was a prophet and had a promise of the Messiah, an anointed one, that he would reign. Now, verse 31, David prophesied of the resurrection before Jesus was ever born or before Jesus was ever died. You see, God wasn't caught off guard by this thing. Said, ooh, 
up, up, whoop, they put my son in a tomb. I better figure out a way to get him out of there. Mm-mm. No. You see, this, this sermon, verse 32, the same Jesus David preached now had come, been raised up 50 days earlier, and Peter's just set, saying it loud and clear. The one that David talked about in Psalms showed up here, and then he went up there, and now he's come back down in here, and I'm here to tell you about it. That's what I'm saying today. That's what you ought to say every day, right? That's what he's saying. And, and look, he makes it clear David is not ascended into heavens. No one's seen David ascend into heavens. Who did they see ascend into heavens? Just Jesus. And yet David talked about it. And you know what? That's what that really messed up the that really messed up the Pharisees. Because when the Pharisees thought they had Jesus backed into the corner, they pull out one of these verses, you know? And, and, and Matthew 26, verse 41 through 46, they pull this verse out. And in that passage, they go a little bit further, read the whole thing. And he says that Jesus comes back and says, well, let me ask you this question. If David says that my Lord speaketh to my Lord, then how can I be the Lord? You know what the Bible said? They went away scratching their hand. In other words, how can God speak to God and somebody else be God? So David wasn't talking about anybody else. He was talking about God. He's talking about the Son and the Father. Y'all not getting this. So David, Psalm 110, verse 1, prophesied how Jesus and the Father are the same. The Lord said unto my Lord. Who was David's Lord? Our Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Never forget who Jesus is because the Bible assuredly lets us know. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, 8 said they would not have crucified him if they had known he'd have been the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. I want to give you uh, just a couple of things and then we'll, we'll finish up. First of all, just this will kind of give you a, the essence of what makes this sermon so powerful. Have you noticed it? He's bringing us down to something we call, what I call, lordship. He's bringing us down to the fact where if you want to know Jesus Christ, there's something uh, that's called lordship. Now, we may refer to it in different terms, in different ways, and we call it salvation, but salvation has to have lordship in it. Listen, who shall call upon the name of the? Look. The credentials of lordship is he has, to have, he has to have a right to rule. His incarnation gives him that right because he was born of a virgin. Was you? No. His credentials give him the right because he died for the sins of the world. Did you? No. The credentials of lordship, he has the right to rule because he rose from the dead and proved that you can't trivialize eternal life. Fourthly, he has the credentials of lordship and the right to rule because he ascended and set down his exaltation. Now look at the essentials of lordship. Christ subsists eternally as Lord. You can read that in John 13, 13. Just write it down. John 13, 13. In other words, there never a time, there was never a time when Jesus wasn't Lord. He's been co-equal, co-eternal, co-creator. He is going to be the Lord of your life, whether you like it or not. That's right. So I'll guarantee you, preacher, I'm not ever getting saved. You may never get saved, but he'll be the Lord of your life. Because the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah, yeah, and you say, what does that mean? That means he can tell you where to go and what to do, and he'll send you to a lake of fire, and he'll send some to heaven, and God is in control. He is Lord. But look at the essentials of his lordship. He, 
he, he persists effectually as Lord. He's not Lord sometime and Lord not, and not Lord sometime. He's always Lord. And then third, don't you look at the potential of his lordship. The realization of God's powers in verse number 33 of our text. When he was exalted, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And this is why there is a release of the Spirit in many people's lives. He has been poured into their lives. They have surrendered totally and completely to him. And so as a result, God works in their life. He's been exalted in their life. And their life is that he's their Lord. But listen to me. I don't care what your problem is this morning. Listen to me. Please hear me this morning. Up here and down there. Listen, if you have a problem, it can't be fixed. You don't see any way for it to be fixed. You've got an addiction you can't kick. You've got some finances you can't fix. You've got problems you don't know the cure for. There's something eating at your heart and you don't know what it is. You're miserable inside and you don't know what to do. Let me tell you how to fix that. If you'll come and fall at Jesus' feet and say, be my boss and my Lord, he will change change things. Oh, he'll change things. And you'll see that he can take a prideful heart, make an humble heart. He can take a hateful heart, make a loving heart. He can take a rebellious child and make a surrendered child. He can take a liar, make him a truth teller. He can take a fornicator and make him pure. He can take you that is addicted by habits and set you free. But look at the indictment of the message, verse 36 and 37. I'm hurrying. When they heard that he had crucified the Lord of heaven, they were pricked. The word pricked is the word that they used for ox goad. They'd sharpen a stick as sharp as they could get it, and they would take that stick. If that oxen wouldn't go where he wanted to, they'd poke him with that stick. You see, if I'd been out there with that elephant the other day, that's what I'd have done instead of just messing around with it. But they kicked him out of the fair because he was being mistreated. Poor elephants. But oxen also were stubborn. And so you'd have to goad them. Well, that hurt. When I was a boy, we had hot sticks. I remember hot sticks, you know. I guess I still got them. And uh, every now and then, Daddy'd get one after me, you know, hot stick. And so you, when you start to get under the conviction of God, Something starts to stick you. Something starts to poke at you. Uh, something starts to hurt just a little bit. And in fact, it don't hurt just a little bit. After a while, it's hurting bad. And, and, and it's sticking you, and it's sticking you, and it's sticking you. That's why you don't like to come to church, because every time you come, it sticks you. But if you can go to a church where it don't stick you, that's where you want to go, because you come out feeling good about yourself. Right on the way to hell. So I want to go. You need to go to a church where it sticks you. Lost or saved, it doesn't matter where you lost or saved, stick you. You know, you say, well, what's so good about that? I'll tell you what's so good about that is when he sticks you and you get right with God, he gives you rejoicing in his heart. I think it's verse 22, David said, he makes my, my heart glad. You leave out of here with something to celebrate because you've got rid of that gold sticking you. Quit poking me with that thing. Well, he will when you get right with him. How many of you remember the day he started gouging you? I remember it well, don't you? He'd gouge you. At first, it was just, you know, you just kind of pushed it aside. But after a while, it got, it got to gouging harder and gouging harder. And next thing you know, tears begin to come out of your eye. Something wrong in my life. God is gouging me. That's conviction. Somebody's getting gouged right now. Right now, you're getting gouged. There's only one thing to do about it, and I'm done. And that's respond to this invitation I'm about to give. You say, well, the Bible don't teach that. Yes, it does. Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. You know how we see so, so many false conversions today? No repentance. It is impossible to separate faith and Repentance. You cannot believe God if you don't believe God, right? So to believe God, that means you've got to repent to believe God. Now, you don't just repent and believe God, but you've got to be sorry for the way you're living or there's no need for you to repent. So 
whatever, all you believe and all you think and the way you're living, when God starts goading you, what God wants you to do is to stop right where you are and say, do I want to keep going and wind up in the place of the lake of fire? Or do I want to turn around and repent and say, God, I do believe on you and my life is not what it is and I'm full of sin and I want you to forgive me and I want you to save me. And I know you can because you come out of the grave three days and proved that you could. And today I come and follow my faith and I ask you, Lord Jesus, to be my Lord. He'll do it today. But if you don't want it, you see, here, here's what people do. They get under conviction because they get goaded. They get goaded. And they'll come down here and they'll weep, and they'll cry, squall. Marriage is in trouble. Life's falling apart. Things are wrong. Nothing's going on good in their heart. They feel bad about their self. Some of them saved, some of them's not. And they, they come down here and they'll weep and they'll cry and they'll pray a prayer. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe he died on the cross. And they walk out of here just like they came in. Tomorrow they're living the same way. Next week they're living the same way. Next week they're living the same way. What happened? They didn't repent. They called, but they didn't call on the Lord. Because Lord means master and boss. You don't get to run your life no more. That's why this group now that we we're calling the millennials, and not all of them like that. Thank God we got some in our church. Thank God that believe the Bible, love Jesus. But the group that's kind of all tried, uh, don't y'all let them throw y'all in that, in that pile called the millennials. You know what their problem is? They don't want anybody to tell them what to do. They don't want anybody to tell them where to go. They don't want anybody to tell them how to live. They want to do what they want to, believe what they want to, and as a result of it, they're miserable in their life. And then they want to make everybody else miserable because of it. Or all they have to do is Repent. And they'd throw their signs down, find the local house of God that believed the Bible, walk down and say, preacher, I've been a fool. I want to give my heart to Jesus and be saved. And I'm done. Are you ready? You've got to repent. Baptism won't save you. Some people read that verse. Let's get our commas in the right place, okay? Here's the problem. The word Repent has a comma. And be baptized, every one of you, and it should be a comma. In the name of Jesus Christ, comma, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I know folks will argue that verse all day long in the first four lines, but they won't even talk about the last two. Let me tell you something. Repentance is how there's remission of sins. You read the Bible through and study it all the way through, there's nowhere in the Bible that teaches us that water baptism can save you. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And there's just one gospel, and that's 1 Corinthians 15, describes what it is, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That was the first sermon to the church. Some people think salvation's achieving something, but it's not. Some people think it's just believing about anything, but it's not. Salvation's about receiving someone. Would you do that today? Look what he said, save yourself. He said, I can't save myself. Yes, you can. You're the one who can. See, Jesus has done everything to save you. Everything necessary to save you. Everything. He's paid all your sin. He's paid the price for all your sins. He's took all your hell upon him. He's done everything, all the wrath of God that should be on you. He took it upon him. All you have to do is come and turn from following the evil one and turn to follow the righteous one, and Jesus Christ will save you. But you're the only one who can save you because you're the only one who can make that decision. I can't make it for you. 